trust you to do that. We pray this all in your great name. Amen. Many jobs in our society offer not just a salary, but a benefits package to go along with it. Benefits like a matching retirement account, various insurance coverage, working remotely, just to name a few. And often these benefits, they're automatically given to employees based on the position that they hold within the company. But for many of those benefits to to actually be experienced, they need to be understood and applied. For example, imagine you took a job with incredible health insurance, but that was never communicated to you. You you never understood that. In that scenario, if you broke your arm and you had to go to the doctor to set the bone, you would end up shelling out thousands of dollars out of pocket, even if that's an expense that would have been fully covered by your insurance. My point here is simply that a great benefit can belong to you, but not be enjoyed by you if you don't recognize it or apply it. Now, this connects to our passage in Romans because it marks the beginning of a new section of the book. Paul spent the first three chapters explaining the universal human need to be justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone. Then in chapter four, Paul defended and demonstrated that doctrine primarily through the life of Abraham. But now as we enter into chapter five, Paul turns to the the benefits or the results that justification brings every single believer, every single Christian. And so in other words, this section is like a summary of the benefits package of salvation. And while these benefits belong to a believer and can never be taken away from them, our experience of those benefits in this life, they'll largely depend on how well we understand them and apply them. The one big question then for us today is what are the benefits of justification by faith? What are the benefits of justification by faith? And Paul, he lists four incredible benefits in our verses. There are many more, but we're going to look at the four that Paul lays out here. We're going to work through those together. And the first benefit that we immediately see in verse 1 is peace with God. Peace with God. Verse 1, therefore, since we... So Paul's shifting here. He's addressing all Christians. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. And that flows from what's already been laid out in Romans. Paul has told us all have have sinned. And in doing so, all exchange the glory of God and seek life from what God has created instead of from him. Sin is more than a bad decision then. It's an act of rebellion. Because when we sin, we operate as if we had authority over the life that God gave to us and and that he claims authority over. And what happens when you have two rulers or kingdoms who declare the right to the same territory? I mean, you can just think of, of Israel and Hamas recently. What's the result? It's war. It's war. And that's why in next week's passage, Paul says that all Christians were at one time enemies of God. Before you were a Christian, you were an enemy of God. I don't know if you've thought about that before. It's not just that, that God was a stranger to you, that you didn't know him. No, no believers, before Christ, we were God's enemy. And this is why we fully deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us as human beings. Our sin every day, it's like an act of war against our maker. Now, many 
people, they wrongly assume that they are at peace with God because they go to church religiously or they've been baptized or, or be, because they try to be a kind person by their own standards. But, but none of those things can pay, pay for our sins and none of them can address the root issue of our rebellious hearts. No amount of, of giving money to the poor, no amount of time spent in prayer, no sacrifices in ministry, no other human effort can ever change our heart and bring an end to that war with God. What we deserve is for God to come at us like a warrior king and destroy us. But instead, he came as a savior king to die for us. He didn't, he didn't come to make war with nukes in his hands, but instead, Jesus came to have nails driven into his hands for his enemies. And he did that to win us over. Only the blood of King Jesus that he voluntarily allowed to be spilled for us in his sacrificial death, that's the only thing that can pay for our sins and bring us into an eternal peace treaty with God. If you want to know the price of peace with God, look to the cross. You have to look to the cross. This is why peace with God can only come by faith in Christ. If our justification depended on our work at all, we could blow it and we would blow it. But since it's based on faith in Jesus's work, then it's secure. Now, before we move on, I need to, to make an important distinction. As one commentator pointed out, peace with God is related to, but it's not identical to the peace of God. Peace with God is objective. You either have it or you don't. You've either been justified by faith or you have not. This peace, it doesn't change based on how you live or how you feel. It's a benefit of salvation that, that cannot be taken. However, the peace of God that many other scriptures talk about, that's subjective. Believers' experience of that largely depends on the degree that they are trusting in God and his promises in the moment. So just for an example, Imagine you have a true believer, so someone who's really saved, and they cave under some intense stress, and they get drunk. They get really drunk, and then they go out driving. And while they're driving, they run over someone, and they kill them. Is that individual at peace with God? Yes. The Bible is clear, yes. Now, does God condone that? No, he hates that. That's wicked. That's sinful. Are there not going to be consequences from that? Oh, no, there, there are going to be consequences. But all of God's wrath and hatred towards sin, past, present, and future, for a true believer in Christ, it's already been paid out. The war is over. Now, flip the, the question. That individual, a true Christian, they do that. Is that going to affect the peace of God that they experience? Almost certainly. <laughs> Almost certainly that, that's going to affect how, how close they feel to God. That, that is going to bring a world of pain and trials into their soul and into their life. But the point that I want you to, to, to understand here, the main point is that peace with God, that's been accomplished by Christ, if you're a believer, and it, it cannot be lost. That's the first guarantee, guaranteed benefit listed, listed in Romans 5. The second is access to God. Access to God, verse 2 we have also obtained access through him, through Jesus, by faith into this grace in which we stand. The first benefit is what we've been saved from, but the second shows what we have been saved to. 
In the Old Testament, one of the major themes is that sin denied people access to the presence of God. I think about Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. They were exiled, and God put these flaming angels in front of the garden with flaming swords, and they were like a big keep-out sign, access denied. And then you fast forward to the temple. In the temple, God dwelled in a special way on earth in the Holy of Holies within the temple, but there was this thick curtain that was put up, a thick curtain, and it was embroidered, and it actually had cherubims on it. And the curtain was another clear keep-out sign. Access denied. But what happened to the curtain in the temple when Jesus died? It was torn from the top to the bottom, from heaven down to earth. Why? Well, when, when Jesus' body, when that was torn on the, on the cross, when his flesh was ripped open, access to God's presence was torn open for you and me as well. To think about how incredible this access is, imagine how it would change the way that people looked at you if they knew that you could meet anytime. You could meet in person, you could FaceTime anytime you wanted to with the President of the United States or maybe some other famous celebrity, someone like Taylor Swift or, or LeBron James. No, if you had access like that to a powerful or influential person, wouldn't that impress most of the people around you? It would change the way most people look at you. It would probably change the way even that you look at yourself. And brothers and sisters, what we need to recognize is that we have in Christ been given infinitely greater access, an infinitely greater privilege than those other examples. Not only do we have access to the living God and his grace, look at what it, it says. It says we have obtained access through him into this grace in which we stand. There's two verbs here for obtained and then stand. And they're in the perfect tense in the Greek. And what this indicates is that we don't periodically have access to the presence of the king of the universe. That's not what this is saying. That would be privilege enough, right? No, what this is indicating is that in our spiritual union with Christ, we stand before God continually. Continually. It's the, it's the difference between visiting a king and being adopted to live with the king. And we, we don't just have access to God. We have a new standing before God, a new right to live before him that we did not have. And what's the foundation of that standing? Well, verse two, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's grace. Grace is what we stand on. That was one of the most reassuring verses to me in the Bible. As young believers, I wrestled with the weight of my sin and my unworthiness before God. In my soul, I, I wondered, how could I ever be confident that God loves me? Other people seem confident, but how, how can I feel safe before God when I'm naturally so sinful? And that question that I was wrestling with, it is not a new one. As I've studied the Bible, I've realized that a recurring question that comes up often is the question, who can stand before a holy God. Who can stand before a holy God? It, it comes up at some very important junctures in the Old Testament. And then in Revelation 6, you get a, a preview of Christ's second coming. And it says all the people in the world, rich and, and poor, great and small, all people who do not know Christ, it says they respond this way. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who's able to stand as a sinner before a holy God? Verse 2, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand before God by grace. Now, grace is one of the, the sweetest words and realities in the universe. Grace is the favor of God that we don't deserve and we can never earn. It's the favor or the kindness or the gifts from God that only do, not only do we not deserve them, we actually deserve his wrath. And yet instead, he, he gives us blessing. It wasn't until I understood God's grace that I understood how God could unconditionally love me and delight in me in spite of my ongoing struggles with sin. See, I'm a, a very goal-oriented person naturally, and so it was incredibly liberating to realize that, that God's acceptance of me and his enjoyment of me, it, it has nothing to do with what I can accomplish for him. It, it has no connection with anything that I do for him. It's, it's just freely given to me in Christ. It's based on his gracious nature. It's based on just who God is. Looking back on, on my life, I, I realized I took for granted much of, of how my parents and, and family loved me. I, for most, most of my life, I, I took that for granted. But as God was humbling me in college, I began to see what a, a terrible son and sibling I had often been. And the love that they gave me so freely, the, the, the way they just enjoyed me as their son, it gave me just a little glimpse of God's gracious heart, his perfectly gracious heart towards his children. See, my parents didn't love me because I honored them so well. They didn't love me because of, of my grades or because of any success I had. They loved me because I was their son. Now, they didn't do it perfectly, but God does. God perfectly loves his children. I was reminded recently of one of the most moving examples of grace flowing from a parent's heart that I've ever heard. Some of you are familiar with Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's a, a Christian musician. Back in, in 2008, he and his wife, they had six children. They had three biological children, and then they adopted three beautiful little girls from China. But one day, Stephen Curtis Chapman, his 17-year-old son, was, was driving home. And his youngest daughter, Maria, she was only five years old. She loved her, her older brother, Will. She saw him coming, and so she ran from around the house to come and to greet him. And he didn't see her. And so he ended up hitting her and running over her and killing her. Now, Chapman was home that day. And so he, he heard the screams. He came running, running outside to see what, what happened. And he says he, he doesn't remember many of the details, but he, he remembers there was a lot of blood. It was, it was just awful. And when his son, Will, when he realized what he had accidentally done, he was so overwhelmed. He was so horrified and ashamed that he actually took off running. He, he, wa he just wanted to get away, which I, I understand that. And his older brother actually saw him. And so his older brother ran. And so a couple yards down, his older brother tackled him because he was afraid of what his younger brother might go and do. And so in all of the chaos of that scene, Chapman, they're, they're rushing to the hospital. And he doesn't even remember this 
But those who were there say that he told the driver to stop when they got in front of the yard where his son Will was at. And he rolled down the window. And you know what he told his son? He said, Will Chapman, your father loves you. Your father loves you. And every time I hear that story, it, it, it moves me deep in my soul. And I think that's because we all long for a father. We all long for a father who loves us unconditionally, no matter how we might fail or sin or bring pain to him. And Stephen Curtis Chapman, his words to his son, they provide just an echo of the far greater affirmations of God's love to each of his children in the gospel. You see, God, he expressed his love the most clearly by sending his one and only son to die for us, not while we were already a part of his family, but when we were still his enemies. And God did that so that he could pour out his grace on us in Christ. He did that so that we could become part of his family by grace. The whole Christian life is a life of faith, and specifically, it's a life of growing reliance upon God's grace to us in Christ. We not only stand on grace, Paul says in this passage, but then in Romans 6, he says that we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So that means we're not going to be judged by the law when we stand before God. We're going to be judged by Christ's perfect record. We're going to be judged as perfect when we stand before God as Christians. The scriptures also teach us that we've been given the spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. God himself has indwelled you if you're a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit that, that makes the truths of God personal to us. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to actually have a relationship with God and that, that takes the truths of God's word and uses those to change us, that empowers us to live the Christian life. And then in one of the most vivid expressions of grace in God's word, Ephesians 1, 6 says that God has lavished his glorious grace on us in Christ. Isn't lavished a great word? This idea, he's given way, 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 way more than you'll ever actually need. I hope you have a picture in your mind of what I'm describing. If you're a Christian, you stand on the unshakable grace of God. You have a firm foundation to stand on. And not only do you have a foundation, you live under a friendly sky. God loves you. God likes you. God wants to bless you. We're not going to be judged by the law. We're under grace. And it, the picture in my mind of God lavishing grace on us, it's like, it's like we're standing under this waterfall, an infinite, unending waterfall of refreshing water just constantly pouring over us. And on top of all that, the spirit of God's grace, it fills us. It's changing us. It's empowering us to walk with Christ. This is the spiritual reality and standing that each and every Christian has before God. And it ties directly to the third benefit of justification by faith, which is the hope of glory. This is benefit number three, the hope of glory. And specifically, it's the hope of the glory of God. Listen again to verse two. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans has already told us again that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all exchange the glory of God for idols. And even as Christians, we continue to, to struggle with idolatry. And yet, amazingly, because of God's grace, Christians have the hope of experiencing and enjoying the glory of God forever. 
The word hope in the Greek is much stronger than in English. It doesn't imply wishful thinking or uncertainty, but it, it implies a confident expectation, a confident expectation. Jude 24 puts it this way. Now to him, God, who's able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand. So here's the, the truth of standing again, the reality of standing again. It says the one who can protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. We should be terrified to stand before God. And yet because of God's grace as believers, when we do, it'll be without blemish and it'll be with great joy. (laughs) Great joy when you stand before God. What's described here is more than the hope of just going to a positive afterlife. The benefit of justification by faith is that we can boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul exposed the foolishness of boasting in our works at the end of chapter three, but here he expects believers to boast in God's glory. He expects that. Now to boast in God's glory, that means to base our identity and our joy and our confidence in life on God as he has revealed himself in the gospel of grace. You see, the gospel, it reveals much more than just the the mechanics of how to get in to heaven. What the gospel reveals is that the greatest treasure and the greatest pleasure of heaven is God himself. It's the glory of God. Now think with me for just a, a moment about God's glory. A definition for you, if you haven't thought about this before, it can be ambiguous to some people. The definition of God's glory is that it's the internal reality and the external display of his infinite beauty, greatness, and divine perfections. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a moment to jot that down. The idea here is that, that God, he's spirit. He's spirit. He's invisible to us. And God, he is perfect within himself. And so the glory of God starts within God himself. And as creatures, we couldn't know anything about God if he didn't reveal it to us. We couldn't know anything about God if he didn't reveal himself. And so God's glory is his internal reality and then the external display. His external display by what he does in the universe and by what he says. It reveals the perfection of who God is. One pastor puts it this way, that God's glory, it's the going public of his his holiness. It's the revealing of that to us. And I want to just consider a few of these divine perfections together. The first is that God is eternal. God just is. And all of you have probably heard that hundreds of times, but I, I was reminded of it recently. I took my two oldest sons out for breakfast, and, and part of the conversation at one point, I just said, hey, have you, have you had any thoughts recently, any questions about God? And my son Wesley, he said, it's crazy that God never started. I thought, that is crazy. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. Everything else in the universe started. Everything else had a, had a beginning point. And we talked for a moment about how you actually need God. If, if, you have, if everything has, has an initial cause, then nothing could be here unless there was an uncaused first cause. But even more than that, it, it makes sense of the universe, but even more than that, when you just meditate on that, I mean, God is in a category all to himself. He's always been Now, that gets even more incredible when you realize that God is triune. He's one being with three distinct 
persons, which means he's an infinite universe of love and joy and relationship within himself. He doesn't need anything or anyone else to complete him. And because God is triune, he can simultaneously be the most exalted and the most humble being in the universe. He can delight in who he is. He can love who he is within the Godhead without that leading to selfishness, without that leading to the vanity and, and ego that we, we deal with as human beings. And so God is eternal. God is triune. God's also all-knowing or omniscient. He knows everything that has been, everything that is, everything that will be. And then even more mind-blowingly, he knows everything that could be in any conceivable universe. And he knows all of that just instinctively. Like he doesn't have to study hard. I mean, he's not like me. There's times where I've, I've studied something out really well and years later someone might ask me a question about it and I think, I knew the answer. <laughs> I knew that. I'm going to have to refresh. That's never the case for God. He just knows. I, I was asking Siri a question a few weeks ago, and I tried like three times, and each time it, was, like it wasn't even close. But I think, man, what, what will it be like to talk to God in heaven? Like he, he perfectly knows the answer to every one of our questions, every question that we don't even think to ask. He already knows. And not only that, have you ever talked to people who are smarter than you? And like they're trying to explain something and it just, go, it just like goes right over your head. Well, God's the best communicator in the universe. He can communicate uniquely to you. He can communicate and help explain things to you by his spirit. We could go on all day, but let me point out just one more. God is brilliant when it comes to his creativity. He's brilliantly creative you can just think about the staggering diversity and complexity and beauty of nature, all the different ecosystems and animals. God just made all of that. He spoke that into being. Where you think of music and taste buds and the sense of touch, that was all God. That was, that was all his idea. And I often think about this with my kids. Each one of them is so wonderful. They have, a, they have their distinct personalities and abilities. And when I interact with them, and when their eyes are, are sparkling, when they smile, and when they're laughing with joy, and when I ask them a question and they get kind of a, a cute look on their face as they're, as they're processing, there's, there's times where I just, I look at them and I think, God made you. <laughs> like, you're one of God's special works. If God designed and gave life to such diverse and delightful human beings, even ones who are affected by sin, then I think to myself, how much more delightful, how much more glorious must their designer be? Must the creator be? Psalm 145, it says that God's greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable, and that means that we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never get bored with who God is in eternity. Instead, each season will be richer and increase our capacity for joy in him. You know, a million years after being in heaven, you won't be any closer to exhausting the glory of God than the first day that you were there. And if you're a Christian, what that, what that means for us practically is that the, the best sights, the best sounds, the best conversations and experiences, they're all eternally ahead of us, which is why we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now there's one more benefit Think about those three benefits. That's incredible in and of itself. But there's one more benefit 
that Paul mentions in this section, and it's the most counterintuitive of them all. It's joy and affliction. Joy and affliction. Right after describing how we boast in the hope of the glory of God, Paul continues in verses 3 through 4 saying, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Paul's point is that justification by faith is so powerful that the benefits begin to change even how believers respond to afflictions and difficulties in life. It's one thing to rejoice when things are going well, isn't it? But it's something else when when people are suffering. Human beings, we don't naturally rejoice when we're in pain. We we don't naturally rejoice when when we're going through difficulty. Now, the word affliction in the Greek, it literally means pressure. It literally means pressure, and it can refer to a number of things, but it refers to the, just the pain and trials that all of us experience in a fallen world. And I want you to notice what Paul says affliction does for believers. You can't miss this. There's a, a progression. In some ways, it's almost like a chain reaction that affliction is, is meant to set off. Paul says affliction in a believer's life, it produces endurance. It produces endurance. The word endurance means steadfastness, particularly when you're under pressure. And so affliction is pressure, and endurance, it's the ability to to stand. It's the the ability to to be steadfast in that pressure. And and all of us, we know to some degree that endurance is important in life. Last year, uh, some of the guys at church asked me to play in a basketball league with them. And I had not played in a long time. I really loved basketball. And so I decided to go to the gym to try and knock off the rust, try and jumpstart getting back in shape. And so I shot for a while, and I was feeling pretty good. And so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a few wind sprints like I did back in college. And so I did, did a few intervals, and then all of a sudden, I felt a sharp pain in my calf. <laughs> and, it, and it tightened. And I thought two things to myself. I thought to myself, um, I'm not in college anymore. <laughs> and I'm not in shape. And what happened was that, that I had not been putting enough pressure recently on those muscles to build up the endurance necessary to do something that used to be easy for me. Our faith, it grows in a similar way. When we experience pressures and difficulty while following Christ, it gives us an opportunity to depend on his promises and rely on his grace in real time to actually trust God in the moment for, for strength and, and for him to change us. Over time, as believers learn to endure and trust God, even when things are difficult, the next phase of the progression blossoms, and that's proven character. Proven character. The word literally means testedness, and it, it refers to how the testing of our faith, it can transform us from the inside out as we rely on Christ. Now, this makes perfect sense because what's God's ultimate will for each one of our lives? Romans 8, 29, it's to conform us to the image of Christ. In other words, for every single believer here, God's ultimate will for your life is to make you as much like Jesus Christ as possible. That you would love the Father more like Jesus did. That you would love others more like Jesus did. And that's exactly what affliction and endurance produces in our walk with the Lord. Just think again about Stephen Curtis Chapman. In the midst of a, a parent's worst nightmare while rushing his wounded daughter to the hospital, 
What spontaneously came out of him to his traumatized son? Affirmation and love. He didn't have any time to think in that moment. Again, he doesn't even remember saying it, but the years of trusting God and enduring through other trials, they had formed him so that his godly response, it was just the natural overflow of his heart. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that real change is possible with Christ? Not just external change, but deep internal change that we don't produce, but that the Holy Spirit of God produces in us as we walk by faith. As we do, Paul explains that proven character, it then produces hope. It's like a, it's like a, a circle. Affliction for a believer, it leads to endurance. And endurance under pressure, it leads to proven character. And proven character, it leads to hope. And the idea here is that it's a stronger and reinforced hope. The longer you walk with Christ, the more certain you'll become over time. It's all true. <laughs> it's actually real. It's not, it, it's not just something that, that some people tell themselves to try and feel better about life. No, God really exists. Heaven and hell are real. You are, I am going to stand before God and I will be accepted. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ did for me. We will get to enjoy the glory of God forever. <laughs> I want to give you three sentences that, that summarize these really important verses. The first is that justifying faith is an enduring faith. If you have real faith, real salvation, God, God doesn't expect perfection. But all, what we're told all over the place in the scriptures is that, is that one of the clearest signs that someone has really come to know the Lord is that they endure. The righteous man falls seven times, yet he rises. So a justifying faith is an enduring faith. Two, enduring faith is a fruitful faith. As we endure, as we rely on Christ, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus said in, in John 15, verse 8, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We don't save ourselves. We don't make ourselves disciples by our efforts. But, but as we abide in Christ, we prove we're his disciples as the spirit produces the fruit of Christ's life in us. You know, one, the way that I'm wired, I get very excited when people make professions of faith, when there's people who are interested in following Christ, say, I want to follow Christ. And that's a good thing to be excited about. We always want to be excited about that as a church. But do you know there's something even more glorious than that? You see, there are many people who profess that they want to follow Christ. They say they want to follow Christ, and they, they fall away. They end up actually just rejecting Christ fully. But, but something that's even more glorious is when you have someone who's been following Christ for five years for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, and they're still excited about Jesus. They're still excited to spend time with him in his word. They still have a desire. They want other people to come to know Jesus. That is such a glorious thing. And as a pastor, one of the, the biggest privileges of my life is to get to see how God over time has matured so many of you, to see the, the fruit of the spirit developing in your lives. An enduring faith is a fruitful faith. 
And the third description here, the third sentence, is that a fruitful faith is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. If you want to let God produce a rich hope within you, I want to give you one very practical step. And that is choose to rejoice in your afflictions. Deliberately, by faith, choose to rejoice in your afflictions. Now, the point here is not to rejoice about evil things that happen to you. There's lots of evil things in the world that God hates. The the idea isn't to try and pretend that those things in and of themselves are good. We don't rejoice about our trials in and of themselves, but we rejoice in our affliction. We boast in our affliction in God. If you're like me, when you feel pressure and trials you don't like, your first impulse will be to do whatever you can to get out of the discomfort. Now, that, that isn't always wrong. If you're sick, take some medicine. That's great. But when we're under pressure, we can be tempted to respond in different circumstances with fear and with selfishness. And so what we want to learn to develop in our lives, we want, we want to develop some muscle memory that when things are difficult, what we do is we stop and we actually thank God that he's in control. Instead of just trying to scramble, how do I get out of this as soon as I can? We stop and we say, God, thank you that you are sovereignly allowing this right now and you have a purpose for it. What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to change me? I've done this so, so imperfectly, but, but this, this effort, like this thought, has been so helpful in my marriage and in my parenting and just in, even just in relationships within the church. When, when things are frustrating, when I don't like how things are going, to stop and say, I need to, I need to wait. And try and figure out, okay, God, what are, you, what are you trying to do here? I think Philippians 4, 6, it captures this well. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. If you're taking notes, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then there's the incredible promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think often what I do, what Christians do, is we are quick to bring our prayers and requests to God. And we should do that. But in my life, those prayers, they rarely transition from asking God for help into a peace that transcends all understanding until I actually stop and thank God for what, what is going on. Does that, does that make sense? I think that's often the step that we miss. We come, we, we kind of worry out loud to God. We should bring all those things to God. But often the shift to where my soul begins to, to experience peace is when I stop and say, God, thank you. You're in control right now. And you're using this for my good. The most important thing isn't trying to get out of this right now. It's letting you change me in it. Again, we thank God. We rejoice in our afflictions, not for the afflictions per se, but we rejoice in God in the midst of affliction because he's in control and because he's using those circumstances to mature us. You can jot down 1 Peter chapter 1 if you want a parallel passage, if you want to think about this more. Peter says there that trials, God allows those, and his ultimate purpose in them is to produce a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what he's up to. That's what he's desiring to do in our lives. And when I think about how much God has changed many of your lives already, it excites me to think about where we could be as a church in five years if all of us embraced this process of spiritual growth. I mean, I'm so encouraged by what God is doing in our church. And just think, if, if we embrace if each one of us embraced that, how much richer our community could be, how much brighter our outreach, our light could shine, our outreach could be on the south side. And just to, to close, 
We want to pursue this hope, this hope of the glory of God. Because in verse 5, Paul says, this hope will not disappoint us. Every other hope in life eventually will. Everything else you put your hope in in life, it will eventually let you down. Paul says, this hope will never disappoint you because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given us. The thought process is, if you're a Christian, the love that you tasted when you first came to Christ, the love that gripped you, you can experience that exponentially greater over time as you stand on God's grace and walk with Christ. Walk with Christ by faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. And thank you, God, that you want us to understand your heart. God, I, I pray as a church that, that we would see the benefits more clearly. We, we would appreciate them. As you say in the Psalms, that we should, we should rejoice in you, our soul. We should delight in you and not forget your benefits. Help us to be a people who are not quick to forget the benefits that you've won for us, the benefits that you've given us. I pray we'd experience them in deeper ways. And God, help each one of us. There's people here in, in trials right now. All of us have different pressures. Lord, Lord, teach us, God, to have joy in affliction. God, we thank you that that's not just possible. It, it, it's inevitable over time to a greater degree that as we walk with you. So we thank you again, and we just ask your spirit to apply to apply these things to each one of our lives in your name. Amen. Well, this time we're going to continue our service with the offer.